1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Spurs Up Show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. Today is Monday, October the 4th, 2021. Today's show, I break down the Gamecocks 23-14 to 14 when a South Carolina survives at williams Bryce. The game improves to 3-2 and two overall on this 2021 football season. Guys, again, I'll talk everything that happens Saturday afternoon at Willie B. Guys, I'll also give you my biggest takeaways, hand out some TSUS game balls, talk my slap dick of the weekend, also hand out the. Cock of the Walk Award, and much, much more. Again, the Gamecocks now sit... 3-2, 3-2, heading into a pivotal game against the Tennessee Volunteers. Also, guys, news and notes to get into, including the opening line for that game at UT. We've also got your listener questions, your voicemails, and a fantastic conversation, guys. Another throwback interview with former Gamecocks great, rest in peace, Dell Wilkes, former Carolina offensive lineman. He joined me way back in July of 2019. Guys, a great conversation. we got a great show here on a Monday, and it's all brought to you by our friends over at upstate movers group guys upstate movers group superior moving service they bring care and attention the companies can't offer because they're just too busy maintaining trucks and profiting off of them instead of focusing on service guys service is what separates upstate movers group from the competition they're not a trucking company or company they're a moving services company and they're also employee-owned co-op the movers are paid twice the industry average and everyone on the crew is invested in your success they have dedicated professional crew members and they also offer black glove service they offer end-to-end packing services custom crating and packaging special items and cleaning services as well. They're founded by Greenville Natives and University of South Carolina alumni, guys, so a Gamecock on small business. They also offer 20 years of project management moving experience, and they can offer logistics and solutions that traditional moving companies simply do not have the skills for. Guys, whether you're in the upstate or across the state of South Carolina, if you have any moving needs in 2021, be sure to check out our friends over at Upstate Movers Group. You can find them on social media at Upstate Movers Group. Of course, if you have any other questions, go to the website upstatemoversgroup.com that's upstatemoversgroup.com be sure to check them out and tell them Chris from the Spurs Up show sent you let's get it who mind don't matter that's the energy we're bringing here on this Monday a victory Monday by the way as the Gamecocks now sit three and two overall in this 2021 football season ladies and gents boys and girls happy Monday hope you're all doing well I'm Chris Phillips the Spurs Up show as always going to appreciate you all tuning in guys and I hope this show finds you well no matter where you are what you're doing whether you're on the commute you're in the office you're on the job you got the off maybe just maybe you're listening in class right now if you are kudos to you but again guys thank you all so much for tuning in here on this Monday and again most importantly a victory Monday as again we embark on this journey of this Gamecocks football here in the month of October feels good feels gonna be talking to you on a Monday after a win we'll get to that and much more here in a second guys but again thank you all thank you thank you thank you so much guys a couple things first First thing is this. To all of those who come out of the TSUS tailgate at Seawells, a major shout-out to you, a major kudos to you and guys again. Thank you so much for making the tailgate a wild success. I know the attendance was light on Saturday, which I think we all expected that to happen. But you know what? Gamecock fans, you brought it. You brought it to the tailgate. You brought it to those that were in the stadium. You brought it. And again, yours truly, by the way, was not in there. And if you're wondering why, I'm here to tell you why, guys you know, I told you all, if you all paid attention, you already knew that uh, we're getting to a point in business where I want to create content at the highest level possible, not just for me, but for you all, for the end consumer. And I had a ticket of the game, and I made sure that ticket was distributed to a Gamecock fan, by the way, someone who doesn't normally get to go to a game. I was able to make their day, make their Saturday, if you will. Well, I ran into my good friend, Yurik Jones, who played who played defensive line at University of South Carolina. You might know who he is. And uh, I live very close to the stadium and just decided, you know what? Let's use this game as the test run in regards to making content at home, sitting behind my MacBook, and covering the football game. Because I told you all, going into Kentucky, I was not planning on going, and things worked out where I was able to get a club-level ticket, if you will, with good Wi-Fi, and we were able to do it. But I will say, covering the game at home, huge success. Did it suck not being in the stadium? Yeah, it did to an extent. But when you have to make decisions around a business and make business grown-up business decisions, if you will, hey, sometimes that's what you got to do. So thank you guys to those who support. If you have any questions, you can ask me. But questioning my fanhood and why I'm not in the stadium, guys, again, I've got a business to run that I care about very deeply. We put a lot of effort in this thing, and I want to make sure the content continues to be A1 for you all. So, again, that's why I did it. In case you're wondering, let's go ahead and get it out there. But I will tell you guys, those who came to the Wells tailgate, thank you all again for your continued love and support. Had an absolute blast. The tailgate continues to be one hell of a time. Quick side note, by the way, again, I led this show off with this sentiment, and I will just touch on this really quickly. Those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind. Guys, I am a human being, okay? And our content, guys, as you know, hey, there are other entities, other outlets out there where you can damn near fall asleep while tuning into them. When you tune into the Spurs Up show, guys, again, we keep things, I would say, fairly buttoned up. During the week, we keep things very professional. If you will, sometimes I go off on rants and everything, but it's it's all love. It's nothing personal. It's all around sports and me having passion and loving my team. But when you tune into the Spurs Up show, guys, what you're getting, and me as a human being, by the way, I'm just a dude, man, that's a little bit of a fairgrounds guy mixed with some frat lot, right? I'm going to have a good damn time and celebrate and let it loose on a Saturday on a game day in Cola. So you know what? Those who DM me and send me screenshots of, hey, this person said this, that person said that, guys, if you're not aboard the Shane train, first thing, but if you're not all aboard the TSUS train at this point, I, doesn't really phase me at all, guys. Again, I, I, I have been dealing with it since day one in 2017, trying to become, you know, this, this create this entity and build up this brand and Give my opinions on my favorite team. guys, you know what? Some people aren't going to like that. You can't please everyone. So, hey, whether I be reporting on a game, whether I be shotgunning a beer, whether I be taking a shot, whether I be in the studio doing a live stream, whatever I might be doing, guys, uh, again, I'm going to continue to rock and roll and do my thing. That's it. TSUS, not your traditional everyday media outlet. If you're looking for that, great you can find it but again those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind and all we've got on this side is all we need so i've been the same guy i've been since day one and i'll keep being that guy just see philly man i'm just a dude that's it we're gonna keep rocking we're gonna keep rolling again if you don't like it hit the unfollow button hit the block button for those who rock with us we'll keep rocking we'll keep rolling we'll keep crushing hey Why am I being humble about it? There's nobody out there that's better than us, period, point blank. If you got a problem with it, if that hurts your feelings, too freaking bad. That's it. Again, don't want to spend a lot of time on it because, hey, I went on a rant on Wednesday and somebody said, hey, Chris, why are you talking about this? We rock and roll with you. You're right. I'm right. I'm going to stop. Appreciate y'all. Thank you. Thank you. But again, don't send me don't send me screenshots or anything else of people talking crap. It is what it is, folks. Just let them talk. Let them chatter. Let them be miserable because the fact of the matter is this. You should be happy today because hey, guess what? We are three and two. Guys, last thing, we'll get to the Troy game. Um, TSUS watch party this weekend. Carolina Alehouse in Somerville, South Carolina. Guys, we are hitting the low country, the Somerville location for Carolina Alehouse. Very excited. We'd love to have you guys come out to that. Um, Going to be a really, really good time. Obviously, guys, again, noon kickoff for Tennessee. Um, Doors will open at 11. Kickoff will be at noon. Would love to have you guys come out again. Cannot wait. The last time I was down in the low country with my good friend Cox by 90 at Rita's, we had a fantastic turnout with the low country game, Cox. Would love to have you all come out there once again. Down again in Somerville, South Carolina. Somerville now. T-S-U-S watch party. Doors at Doors at 11. Kickoff at noon this Saturday against the Tennessee Volunteers. It's going to be a really, really good time. But, guys, before we look ahead to Tennessee, let's talk about this game that happened on Saturday. Gamecocks did a 23-14 to 14 win over the Tory Trojans in a game that was very interesting, very back and forth, had many of you on the edge of your seat, and many of you, many of you upset. In the post-game as well. Let me start with this, guys. Hey, are things perfect right now? No, they are not. And they are far from. But when I get to the point where I feel as a fan, I cannot celebrate a win, no matter how big or small, I'll quit doing it. I'll quit doing it. I'll quit being a fan. I'll, I'll quit watching sports. Because you know what? Life, sport, anything is very, very difficult. So to get a win, no matter who it is, especially when you're a football team that you lost two in a row, you're over-unders three and a half, you only won two games last year. Folks, again, it's a little word called perspective. Perspective, right? I, I keep preaching this word perspective. Things are not perfect right now. This is far from a perfect football team. We all know that. But damn it, you sit here three and two. And your bull hopes, your dreams, your aspirations—guess what? They're all still alive. They're all still alive. I'm getting again, like I told you guys. I- I'm getting to the point. I understand. I do it every single day, and my buddies joking with me and say, "Chris, I mean, you should be good at what you do. You talk about it every day. You're right. You're right." But man, I had 24 to 13 Gamecocks, and I'd be damned if they went out one 23 to 14, which, by the way, now South Carolina, four and one against the spread. This is an imperfect football team, guys. There are issues. There are problems with this team. The offensive line continues to struggle. You only ran for, I believe, 101 yards on the ground against Troy, guys. You only had 356 yards of offense. That's it. You had 10 penalties which is is truly mind blowing and 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 hard to comprehend and i totally understand guys if you're a fan you're upset about the penalties you should be you should be i mean where's the accountability at this is not me coming at shane this is not me coming at any really even of our coaches because guys you think shane beamer's coaching guys to make penalties he's not what i would ask you this what is he supposed to do cuz i don't know i don't have the answer i'm asking you guys what is he supposed to do? 10 penalties for 93 yards. 10 penalties, guys. I mean, it's just, it's hard to wrap my brain around it. But how about Clayton White, man? How about that cox defense? In a game where you only scored one offensive touchdown, by the way. This offense has issues. This offense has struggles, which, by the way, I'll point this out, too. It does not start with the man or center. Luke Doty right now, is he winning the Heisman, or is he an all-SEC player? No, but he is playing fine football for the Gamecocks. 20 of 34 on Saturday, 255 yards, threw a touchdown, and he's not putting the ball, for the most part, in harm's way in regards to what I'm seeing. Luke Doty is not the problem, guys. Luke Doty is doing everything he can behind an offensive line that can't do jack shit. That's the reality. I mean, he sacked three times. You run for 101 yards. You know, Kevin Harris actually, you look at it, ran for 4.5 yards per carry. Only got it 11 times, though. But the running game is just not consistent enough. It's just not there. And I'll tell you, this guy's watching the game with Yurick Jones. He blames a lot of it on play calling, too. So, hey, maybe you guys are on to something with Marcus Satterfield. May- maybe Marcus Satterfield isn't over his head. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time today talking about play calling in Satterfield because, again, guys, like I told you in the last week, at the end of the day, you got to execute. But you're at Jones again who played the game, played at South Carolina, knows football. He was very quick to point out watching the game with me. Hey, they're doing this. They should have done that. That's a bad play call. That's a bad coaching decision. So, Hey, maybe there is something to that. But back to my point, Luke Doty's playing far well enough to win the football game. He's playing well enough to give this team a chance to win week in and week out. It's your offensive line, guys, that has to step up. It's your offensive line that has to get it together. That has to be better. But thank God. Can we just spend this entire show talking about the defense? Can we do that? Because we didn't get to do that last week. I mean, it's in, it's it's truly incredible what Clayton White has done with this Gamecocks defense, guys. You force two fumbles and you get two picks, one of which is returned for a touchdown, guys. Without this defense, you're you're most certainly probably one in four. Without the defense doing what they've done, I mean, they've bailed you out week after week after week. You think about it, guys. Hey, EIU, throw it away. Your wins over East Carolina and Troy. Your defense basically won those games for you. You think back to ECU, the pick six by Damani Staley. And you think about this game on Saturday, David Spaulding, with his interception return for a touchdown. Staley with another pick in this one. You think of what Jamar Brown did. I I know people are, I'm not going to be the guy here today, guys, that's going to rip Jamar Brown. The kid made a mistake, okay? In real time, when it happened at that moment, I was very upset, as were you. But having some time to think, guys, you go on social media, hey, he owned it, right? He did all he could. He knows he messed up. He knows he messed up. I'm sure nobody feels worse than he does. But you had some guys really step up, some guys on that defensive side. I mean, truly making plays. Where would you be without Clayton White in that defense right now? Where would you be without them? I mean, it, it, it's nuts, What they've done with this group. Jalen Foster is playing like a legitimate All-American right now, I guess. Where did he come from? 11 tackles, a sack, a tackle for loss, and two forced fumbles. This dude is literally Coach Simpson 2.0. A former two-star recruit that, you know, I, I hardly even knew who he was last year. Now he's your best player on defense? Crazy, crazy what Clayton White and Torian Gray have done. But, guys, again, bottom line is this, because, again, I, I know many of you, maybe you cut on this show today thinking, oh, Chris is going to rip us. He thinks we're terrible. Quite opposite, guys. We're right exactly where I thought we'd be. And, obviously, if you look at my score prediction, the game went about how I thought it would. Again, I thought maybe you'd have a little more success offensively, which is a major, major issue that that's still got to be fixed. You got to find a way to run the football. Because I just, I, I watch the game. You're not a football team that's going to be able to throw it 50 times and win. You're, I mean, I, I know that's stating the obvious. I understand that. But I want to reemphasize, you're just going to have a really hard time winning any more SEC games, maybe outside of Vandy, if you cannot run the ball, at least with some consistency. I mean, you have to. You have to. But again, guys, Make sure your expectations are in line with who this football team is. I know some of you like to say, hey, we're, we're this talented, we're that talented. And again, we've got talented football players. You're not, a, you're not Vanderbilt. You're not UConn. You're not a horrific football team. But you're not an 11-2 and two football team either. Guys, you've lost two games this year. Both of those teams are ranked. Those teams are undefeated. Combined. Look at what Kentucky did on Saturday night. Beating Florida. I I mean, I don't know. I think I might be more giddy about the outlook of this season after Saturday night, after Saturday as a whole. I might be more optimistic. Yes, you have major flaws and major issues. So do a lot of other teams. And we knew, I mean, guys, the Jamar Brown play is truly a summarization of Gamecocks football in 2020, where it's just a roller coaster. It's all over the place, right? It's all over the place. And that's okay, though. That's why I said before, guys, if Shane Beamer can somehow guide this roller coaster to six wins, he did an incredible job. He did an incredible job. I know many of you are upset because South Downer didn't take care of their business and win 38 to 7. That's not who you are. That's not who you are, guys. You're probably a six and six at best football team, which, again, that doesn't mean you're terrible. Doesn't mean you're terrible, but it's just where you are right now. And especially if you cannot run the football in a consistent basis. Again, thank God for Clayton White's defense because you'd be. In a world of hurt, without those folks, you'd be in a world of hurt. If your defense wasn't doing what they're doing, let's put respect on the Gamecocks' defense. I know it was Troy. I understand, guys, but let's 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 give them their kudos when they deserve it. I'm I'm the first to critique. I'm the first to criticize. But let it be known, I'm also the first to give praise when praise is due, and, and they deserve all of the praise right now. Again, there will be more challenges. The second half of the schedule will certainly test your merit as a defense. But I've got nothing but positive things to say defensively. I think Clayton White continues to call a beautiful game on defense, very aggressive. He He got after Taylor Powell. Yeah, Troy made some plays. Guys, Troy has some good football players. But, I mean, for the most part, you took care of your business. But again, guys, this is an imperfect football team, okay? You're not a great team. And that's okay. Nobody expected you to be a great football team in year one of Shane Beamer. Progression week to week to week. Was it as large of a jump? Was it as much progress as you or I would have liked to have seen? Eh, maybe not. But you know what? This football team came out. They battled. They fought their asses off. Again, penalties have got to get fixed. Discipline has to be better. I don't know what Shane Beamer can do about that. And I saw some people saying, well, he's all buddy-buddy with him. He needs to be harsh on him. Well, guys, I think Shane Beamer is walking a very fine line right now. I think think Shane Beamer probably wants to be that hard-ass and that asshole, but he's also trying to hold together a locker room where he is a first-year head football coach, and he's still trying, believe it or not, I think he's still trying to earn the trust of those guys on that football team. So it's like, how hard you come down on guys? Like, you want to be liked, but you also want to be a disciplinarian, if you will. I think that's the fine line he's trying to figure out right now and what, what, what he's trying to do. But, guys, I, I sit here today on a Monday. Hey, there are problems. There are issues. I mean, at this point, guys, they're turning into known commodities. Though. Hey, you just can't block. <laughs> you just can't block. That's it. You just can't block. A guy who needs to get on the field more? E.J. Jenkins, right? We saw Josh Van what he can do. I, and I mean, guys, I, I know we we love him as Gamecock fans, but my God, somebody get to carry on Joiner off the field. I, you know he's a great kid. I'm glad he's stuck around. And I normally don't call out guys individually, but coming in this season, guys, I said that he has an undeniable skill set, and he does. Got great athleticism, but my God, find a different position for him because he's not a wide receiver. He's, He's not. There's other guys on this roster that need to be getting those reps. There's other guys on this roster that need to be getting those opportunities. Guys like EJ Jenkins. Guys like Amarian Brown. Please give them those opportunities because they deserve it. And I'm sorry, but five ain't getting the job done. He's not. He's not getting the job done. But, again, what you saw in this football game, guys, is, again, exactly what I expected to happen. I I think a sloppy back-and-forth. What's interesting, the game, to me, I I felt confident the entire time. I I did not think, guys, in any way South Carolina was going to lose that football game. Coming into it, even early on, just didn't think so. And, again, I see people on social media going crazy, freaking out. I challenge you again this week to – maybe take a look at yourself and your expectations and your perspective on this football team and how, how good you think South Carolina is and or should be. Because I think at this point, again, they're right where I expected. I think Shane Beamer's doing a fine job. Could things be better offensively? Absolutely. And they've got to improve. They have to. Hey, it's a lot easier today to sit here and talk about these offensive woes after a win Versus this time last week, talking after a loss, right? Much easier. it's Much easier, but they got to get better. There's no question. But at this point, I mean, is the offensive line just a known commodity now? You just can't run the ball, I guess. You just can't run the ball. I still sit here, guys, on this Monday, October the 4th, and I still tell you guys I I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't understand why the Gamecock cannot run the ball better, why they can't block, what happened? How much of it's play calling? Is it majority play calling? Is it something else? Bottom line is this though: you found a way to get the job done. You got it done. You responded to adversity the right way. You battled. You fought. You scratched. You clawed. And you got a hard-fought victory, which is what I expect in England, guys. That's the big takeaway. That that that's the thing you should be feeling today. Hey. We're three and two. Even if you get to six and six years, this year, guys, it's not going to be pretty, right? Roller coaster ride. Like I said, it's not going to be pretty. But give kudos and, 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 and appreciation where it's due for this team finding a way. Just like Gamecock baseball, win anyway. Win anyway. Find a way. Doesn't matter. Just win anyway. That's what the Gamecocks did on Saturday. 23 to 14. You've already won more than you won last year. And I'm not trying to lower your expectations of we just we should expect mediocrity, but I'm not doing that at all. But I am trying to inject perspective. Through five weeks, you're three and two. We know, guys, what has to get better. Like, it's no secret with this football team. It's no secret. Offensive line's got to improve. But how about your defense? God, if your offense can ever get it rolling, they can ever figure it out. I mean, what Clayton White, Torian Gray, Jimmy Lindsey, what those guys have done, I mean, it's nothing short of remarkable. So, I mean, here, kudos to those guys. Kudos to those guys, man. We didn't get to appreciate the defense last week because we were all complaining about the offense all week, which was very fair. But you know what? We should damn appreciate that defense this week because without that defense, <laughs> hey, without that defense, you're in a world of hurt. You're in a world of hurt. So, good on you, Clayton White. Good on you, Torian Gray. Good on you, Jimmy Lindsey. Y'all keep getting after him. All right, guys, let's get my biggest takeaway from this past weekend. Hey, I've been talking about him all show, guys. My biggest takeaway from this Saturday, Clayton White needs a freaking pay raise. I mean, my goodness. I keep waiting on the game, and I don't mean this in like a negative way, but I keep waiting on the game where it's like I see us playing. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's the defense from last year. There there it is. That, that's that right there. <clears throat> that happening is why I expect this to not be so good, or that happening, or that happening. And i tell you what, this defense just keeps showing up and keeps showing out. It, it's it, With the guys you lost from last year's team, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. It, it's truly remarkable. So, again, my biggest takeaway, Clayton White needs a pay raise, guys. What have you got to do to keep him around? Do it. Do it. Because Clayton White is that freaking dude right now. Clayton White is that freaking dude. All right, guys. Let's hand out some TSUS game balls here on a Monday. And again, this guy right here, you know, many fans had high expectations of him. And I told you guys, hey, there's going to be an adjustment period, right? Coming from a lower level, I know know how he's built. I understand it. But there's going to be an adjustment period. But so happy to see E.J. Jenkins finally get his opportunity and not just get his opportunity, but make the most of it with a touchdown catch. How about it? E.J. Jenkins, two catches for 28 yards. And of course, the big touchdown catch. That was a major moment in that game, by the way. Great throw, great catch, great scamper after the catch to get in. So E.J. Jenkins most certainly deserving a game ball. Hey, how about another guy? Another game ball we're giving out, but how about another guy that transferred in that needed some time maybe to adjust to this level before he could make a big play? That is David Spaulding, the Georgia Southern transfer with the pick six. How about old David Spaulding, huh? He also added five total tackles. Again, had the 74-yard interception return for a touchdown. Huge huge moment in that game and my last game ball guys again and what's crazy is you look at all three of these guys not highly regarded recruiting so it goes to show you you get guys in you can do so much more with so much less when you have guys that buy in believe in the culture believe in what you're building and Jalen Foster my final one guys I I literally could have made him the cock of the walk again this week but I decided you know what I want to switch it up a little bit I want to mix it up so I'm just going to give Jalen Foster a game ball but guys you look at his stat line. 11 total tackles, one sack, one tackle for loss, and two forced fumbles. I mean, this dude is all over the field. So, again, kudos to the three guys I mentioned. It's wild, man. Like I said, not highly regarded in recruiting. Nothing over the top, but just dudes making plays. That's it. Just dudes making plays. How about it? How about it? Good on you. All right, guys, let's move to the slap dig of the weekend. And this one is interesting because I know many of you went straight to Jamar Brown. And like I got, guys, I told, I'll tell you this. Was that a slap dick moment? Absolutely it was. No question it was. But I respect the fact that Jamar Brown owned it. He owned up to it. He knows he made a mistake. He put that out there on social media, right? And I'm sure, again, there's nobody that feels worse than he does. But I don't know if you missed this. The slap dick of the weekend for me, is old Bobby Castlin. Old Bobby Castlin himself. Talking about, for whatever, I don't know, if, I don't know if, if, if the paper asked to interview him or he just came out of nowhere and said, I want to have a conversation. But to just come out out of nowhere, Bob, and say, you know, taking the USC job is my greatest regret in life. And I'm not even a freaking alumni. But some of the things he said, man, like, dude, just leave it alone. You messed up. You're not in Columbia because you messed up. not I, not you, not somebody else. Bob, you messed up. So to have this passive aggressive type of tone where you're gonna, you're gonna blame South Carolina, you're gonna blame the people there. No, Bob. To hell with you. How about that? To hell with you, Bobby. Come on, man. You're too credentialed, you're too grown folk to not just take responsibility for your actions and what you did. You messed up. That's why you're not there. Bob Castlin, you're the slap dig of the weekend. You were the slap dig of the century when you said the University of California, and guess what? You're the slap dig of the century now. So good on you, Bob. Put that on your freaking shirt, your badge of honor. Slap dig of the weekend. Good job. All right, let's move into our cock of the walk of work, guys. Final, before we uh, wrap things up with Troy, Our weekly Cock of the Walk Award. Again, guys, I I, I talked about this defense all show. We're going to appreciate the defense today. We didn't do it last week because you lost, and we want to talk offense, 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 Satterfield, Satterfield, Satterfield. No, today, I'm giving the defense their credit, man. The Cock of the Walk Award goes to not an individual player. Clayton White, though, your defensive coordinator. I mean, again, let's give a round of applause to Clayton White. What a job he's done with this game, Cox, defense. And again, is this defense perfect? No, far from that. Far from that for sure. But they continue to be opportunistic. They continue to put this football team in a position to win games, and that was the case again yesterday. Two forced fumbles, two interceptions. I mean, what more can you ask for, guys? What more can you ask for? Your defensive line playing out of their mind. You got guys in the secondary making plays. Heck, you even got guys making plays in special teams. I mean, and I know that's not Clayton White, but, What Clayton White, Torian Gray, Jimmy Lindsay, that entire defensive staff, what they've done on that side of the ball is nothing short of remarkable. Nothing short of remarkable. So again, guys, my cock and the walk Award award for this week, Gamecocks, the coordinator, Clayton White. So again, guys, that's going to do for my breakdown of Troy. I know we're going to talk about it all week long on the podcast, the Daily Crawl, that good stuff. But again, guys, savor this one. Celebrate this. I understand it's a nine point win over a Sun Belt team. But guess what? Two years ago, you lost to a Sun Belt team. It was tough. It was hard fought. We expected it to be, did we not? And you got the job done. Issues to be fixed. But hey, I feel a lot better today than I did this time last week. Fair enough. So, hey, make sure your perspective's right. Make sure your expectations are in line with the reality of this football team. And we all understand what lies ahead this week. Massive opportunity and a massive swing game in regards to how your season is going to go. With that being said, guys, let's move into a quick note. Quick news and notes. We're getting your questions and voicemails and speaking on that Tennessee game. South kind of opening up as a 12-point underdog to the Tennessee Volunteers. Again, kickoff this Saturday. At Neyland, at noon, that line has actually since dropped to Gamecocks plus 10. The over-under set at 54.5. Now, I will say this. I was surprised. I was surprised to see that spread open up so high. If you got it at 12, good on you. I I was very, very surprised. You know, again, I understand what Tennessee did over the weekend. They absolutely smashed Mizzou. Smashed them smashed Mizzou. But Tennessee's a very imperfect football team themselves. So, for Carolina to open up damn near a two-touchdown underdog, I get it's in Neyland, but wow. So, again, do with that information once you will. We'll talk gambling on Wednesday, but Carolina now a 10-point underdog, open at 12, now at 10. So, money poured in on the Gamecocks. But Carolina, a double-digit dog on the road. Make of that information. What you will. All right, guys. Let's go ahead and jump into your voicemails. we got some really good voicemails lined up. And uh, we'll take your questions as well and get in our interview. Here we go. I left.
2: I was watching the game at my house. And when number five, um, maybe eight, whoever <laughs> dropped the ball, number eight, I see the picture of him now with his uh, funky face after the call got reversed from touchdown to fumble into the end zone, touchback. I almost left and um, broke into the stadium so I could beat him up. <laughs> <laughs> that was the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> hey, but we covered Even in 4-1 the spread. Let's go. Pay money.
1: That might be the most Gamecock voicemail I've ever heard. Um, but I'll tell you this, though. Your feelings on Jamar Brown and what happened, I I got to say I understand them. I think many of us were feeling the same way. Great stuff there. All right, one more voicemail, and we'll get to your questions.
2: Hey, Chris. So, wow, what an what a interesting game. I have to say, being a Carolina fan as long as I had, that had to be the most bizarre and interesting game I've ever watched. Just the amount of fumbles, the, the, the pick six before the half, the, the inexplicable play by Jamar Brown like I have just never seen that much in a Carolina game like that man but at the end of the day you got to win you're three and two I think a lot of people were missing the point a lot of people thought we were just going to go in and just blow the doors off Troy and obviously they hadn't watched the same team we had the last few weeks but as I said you got to win now People are going to harp on play calling, whatever. I actually thought play calling was a lot better this week. Uh, I, you moved the pocket with Luke Doty, got him to move uh, on some bootlegs, makes some easy high percentage throws for the tight ends. I think that's where Luke's the most comfortable. I think that's where he's better. And I like to see a lot more of that. You got a little bit more creative with the reverse call to Josh Mann. Um, We'd like to see that maybe to Mariam Brown or Joyner, something like that. But go back to the fourth down play call early. When your offensive line holds up, Luke Doty makes a beautiful throw and the ball's dropped. And that's not play calling. That's not coaching. You're putting the players in the best possible place to succeed. You got to execute. That's, that's what you said all week. That's what I said in the call last week. Got to execute. Now, you travel to Knoxville on Saturday, and the game looks a little bit more interesting after seeing what Tennessee literally ran through Missouri. But it's a winnable game. You win this game, you get to four and two. You have Vandy the next week, a really good chance to get to five and two. But let's go to Knoxville. Let's try to just. Leave it all, leave it all out there. This is this. You said it best. This is a scrappy bunch. Let's give it time. Let's, let's, let's let this team come together, and let's see what happens.
1: Tim, great perspective as always, man. You just said at the end, scrappy bunch. I mean, this is a bunch of gamecocks in every sense of the word. We fight, we scratch, we claw. Hey, it's not always pretty at times. Most certainly, but you know what? To hell with it. There are guys. There are twenty-two. There are however many's on the roster. You find a way. That's it. It's a math class, not an art class, folks. And you're three and two. And you're three and two. Dubs a dubs a dubs a dub. I'd much rather be South Carolina today than Troy. I can tell you that right now. So, I agree with your points, Tim. Um, Again, I I think that where this team has to improve, everywhere. Play calling's got to be better. Execution's got to be better. You can't drop the football. You're not good enough. To drop the football. Luke Doty is not a problem. I think if I think if you're still complaining about Luke Doty at this point, you just want to dislike number four. You, you want to dislike him. You do. You want to dislike him. Offensive line's got to get better. Everything's got to get better. Top to bottom. But hey, like you said, Tim, bottom line is this: you won the football game. Plain and simple. All right, guys. Let's get to your listener questions. Appreciate you, Tim. Great call, by the way. Jay Painter71 says Jamar Brown better be running 110-yard sprints with a football. All practice today. <laughs> Jordan Portillo93 says, I vote Scott Wingo for the permanent startup man for the Gamecocks chant. Yeah, Wingo's a legend, bro. Got to get him back on the show. Wingo's a legend. Um, <clears throat> Austin G.N.O.S. 45. It was ugly. I get that, but this team continues to fight, and that is what must champ left, period. Bingo. I like it. You hit the nail on the head. Uh, hey, I'm Blaine. I need answers, answers on the Quandre white, bro. I have no idea. I don't know why he doesn't play. I, I mean... Hey, I, I wish I had an answer for you. Didn't I even touch the football yesterday? Uh, Bonham.J is Clayton White, the defensive guru that Muschamp wants to be, I guess so. Uh, Nick Stedman, our defense is almost outscoring our offensive season. I mean, it's truly remarkable. Thank God for that defense. Uh, Jay McClary 28. Luke Doty looked better. Was it because lesser competition or is he improving? I think both. I think both. I mean, I, I think Troy, again, guys, was certainly a relief from playing Georgia and Kentucky defensively, but. Also, this guy's. I mean, you think that was just the second game he started all season. So, he was a little rusty when he played against Georgia. He was rusty last week against Kentucky. Maybe he's starting to feel it a little bit, you know, get a little more polished, feel a little bit better. And I think, oh, yeah, guys, he's still a really young player, and he's improving week to week to week. I think you're going to see more of that. Uh, let's see. Depressed Atlanta sports fan. God, what a username for you after, uh, after Sunday afternoon. He says, nothing to worry about. Year one, making chicken salad out of chicken crap. Just keep playing. Love that. Love that perspective. Love that energy. Uh, Emory Moore Jr. says, the Trojans' protection was no match for Cox. Indeed. Uh, last question. E-Cards08, what did you think of the Beamer calling out the fans for empty seats during his presser? Um, I guess what do you expect him to say? Listen, I understand with the fans that didn't go. Um, I mean, we expected the, 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 the attendance to be crappy. We did. And that's what it was. I mean, it looked ugly. It looked ugly. And I understand I was not in the stadium, guys. Again, I gave my ticket to a game cock. I was doing my thing, making content. You all understand that. But, uh, yeah, the attendance was shot. I wasn't shocked. I wasn't surprised. You know, they, they said 60,000. It looked like 40,000 to me. Uh, upper decks were really ugly. But, you know, it's 2021, man, and I'll tell you this. South Ghana fans, or South Ghana, is not the only school that is struggling with attendance and putting butts in the seats. You know, we're, we're not the only school, guys. We're not the only school. So, I know it sucks, and I understand where Shane's coming from. I, I, I totally get it, but, uh, you know, with all the streaming possibilities and, and, you know, being able to watch games at home and have your own bathroom and have your own food and have your own drink, it's not just a fight South Carolina's fighting. It's a fight every school is fighting to get people in the stadium. So, But I get where Shane's coming from. I totally 110% understand where Shane is coming from guys. Again, that's going to do it all for me. Appreciate you all tuning in folks again one quick thing. I forgot to mention uh, those who showed love at the threat affair event on Sunday afternoon at Noma warehouse. Thank you all so much again for the love and support. Man, had an incredible time and it's truly just a blessing to be able to go, be able to go out there, go out to Noma warehouse and, and uh, give back to the community and support so many great young entrepreneurs. So, again, appreciate you guys. Appreciate them. Uh, appreciate my dudes with Threat Affair. Appreciate them having me out and give me the opportunity to support such a great event and support great young entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, if you ever see me tag those guys, you ever see them on our story, on our socials, whatever, be sure to support them, man. You can get you some fire new Gamecock stuff. As well, or whatever vintage stuff you might need. Uh, but again, guys, that's going to do all for me. Appreciate you all. We got, a, we got a packed week, very exciting week. Tin Roof Wednesday watch party Saturday. Content rocking and rolling here on TSUS. And then guys, don't go anywhere yet. We've got a great interview with a gamecock legend. Rest in peace, May And I figured, you know what? This is a great time to bring this interview back to light because again, he did unfortunately pass a couple months ago, and shocking, obviously, very sad. But wanted to bring uh, attention to this conversation with Del Wilkes, former Gamecocks offensive lineman. So, again, guys, thank you all so much for tuning in. Have a great rest of your Monday, and enjoy this conversation with former Gamecocks offensive lineman, Del Wilkes. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up
3: show is a man that played for the Gamecocks from 1980 to 1981 and then 1983 to 1984. He's one of only four consensus All-Americans from the University of South Carolina, part of an offensive line in 1984 specifically that helped set school records for touchdowns, points, and total offense. After his playing days, he was also a professional wrestler from 1988 to 2000, known as both the trooper in his early years and the Patriot, more well-known to people who watched wrestling, um, I'm really, really pleased and excited to welcome the show, former Gamecocks offensive lineman and professional wrestler, Del Wilkes. Del, really appreciate you taking the time, in. It, it's just a pleasure to have you on.
4: Well, I appreciate you inviting me on the show. i looking forward to it.
3: If no doubt. So, Del, like I mentioned you know, off-air, there's a lot to get to. When it comes to you, it's funny, I thought about reading the opening intro and the uh, the traditional kind of wrestling kind of uh, put the flair for dramatics on it, but I resisted. But I, w- I want to start with you from the beginning. We're going to keep it mostly South Carolina and then we'll obviously we'll get to your wrestling career because I'm very intrigued by that. But uh, you're a local kid. I believe you're from, you were from uh, Irmo, South Carolina, obviously recruited by Jim Carlin and his staff in the early 80s. Um, very highly regarded prospect on the offensive line. But just talk about your recruitment and why you eventually chose to come to South Carolina.
4: Well, I, I lived here. Uh, I'm from Columbia, like you said, and we lived here until 1973. And in 73, my dad moved our family to Georgia. He worked in a ministry there for five years. And when we moved, we lived on the other side of the airport. So had we never moved, I would have gone to airport high school. But we were gone those five years, and when we came back, we actually moved back to Columbia, but in the Irmo area. So I ended up going to Irmo High School my junior and senior year. The recruiting process for me actually started in the ninth grade when I was at Calhoun High School in Calhoun, Georgia. Uh, I was in class one day, and uh, uh, the uh, the lady in the office came over the intercom system and said that I needed to report to the football office, that uh, the head coach needed to see me. Of course, naturally, I think I'm in trouble, but I get to the football office. And our head coach, Buzzy McMillan, introduces me to a guy named um, Clyde Wren, who was uh, working at Clemson at the time. And of course, all Carolina fans know who Clyde is and how much he's contributed to our program here. But anyway, Clyde was with Clemson at the time. And so Clemson started recruiting me in, in the ninth grade. And then after that came other schools, South Carolina, Georgia, Georgia Tech, and many other schools in the southeast. But we came back to South Carolina in 1978, and my junior and senior year, I went to Irmo. And then that's when the recruiting process really picked up and really become pretty intense and pretty heavy. But for me, all along, I was going to go to school in state. Originally, I committed to go to Clemson. Danny Ford was the head coach there, and I thought a lot of Coach Ford still do. Uh, I've seen Coach Ford uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years. And uh, Jimmy Laycock, who later became the head coach at William & Mary, was the guy that was actually recruiting me for Clemson. And I fell in love with the place when I took my official visit up there. So um, I shook hands one Sunday morning with Coach Ford and Coach Laycock after an official visit and committed to go. And uh, literally uh, within a couple of weeks, Jim Carlin had contacted me and got a hold of me and talked me out of it. And uh, I'm glad he did. I never regretted it. I, I grew up a Gamecock fan, was raised by a Gamecock family, and uh, never regretted one second being a Gamecock.
3: That's awesome. So it, the it sounds like, like you said, you were definitely on the fence almost about to go to Clemson, but you don't. You go to South Carolina. You get on campus. I know for you, you know, Dell. just looking back at your career, really when you started to shine was really the 83 and then obviously the 84 season when all the accolades started to come. But I want to go back to – to your freshman year, obviously, 1980, you play with a guy that's obviously one of the most legendary Gamecocks of all time and George Rogers, Heisman Trophy winner, the only one from the state of South Carolina, not just from USC, but the state of South Carolina, I might add. Um, talk about just getting – I'll start off first. Talk about just getting on campus a, as a freshman. You know, what was the adjustment like for you? Obviously, again, being a local kid, you said you grew up a Gamecock. I know it had to be sort of kind of like a dream come true moment, but what was the adjustment like going from the high school game to the college game?
4: It's the biggest adjustment a football player will ever make going from high school to college. That's a bigger adjustment than going from college to pro. There's no doubt about it. I, uh, I was an extremely good high school football player uh, at Armo, recruited by a lot of schools, an all-state football player. Uh, and when I get to Carolina and camp opens, for the first three days, it was just the incoming freshmen that were uh, a part of those first three days of practice. Then the upperclassmen came in, and that's when business picked up. And I was overwhelmed. I remember calling my dad one night after a practice, and, man, I've gone against Emmanuel Weaver and Andrew Providence, and these guys are kicking my tail. And I told my dad, I said, listen, I said, don't be surprised. If any day now I end up back at the house. He said, what do you mean? I said, I promise you these coaches are going to realize they've made a mistake, and I don't belong here. I said, this is overwhelming. I said, these are grown men I'm playing against. And I said, I think, honestly, they're going to realize they just made a huge mistake in recruiting me and giving me a scholarship. And I'm convinced that they're probably going to tell me I just need to pack up and go home. But that didn't happen, and I stuck it out. And, and, you know, the the more I practiced and the more I participated, and I'm thankful that I got to practice against those uh, guys like Andrew and Emmanuel Weaver and Ricky Haygood and – Phil Ellis, those guys just made me a better football player. But originally, it was it was overwhelming, and I I felt like I was in way over my head. But eventually, was able to adapt and and become a better
2: football player.
3: No doubt. So, Dell, talk about your your relationships uh, or your relationship, your first interactions with uh, the former head coach Jim Carlin. Obviously, a guy that uh, you know I, I wasn't able to you know see or don't really know a whole lot about. So, I'm just curious to kind of get your takes on that. what was Jim Carlin like as a head coach for the Gamecocks.
4: Well, I I ended up being a Gamecock because of Jim Carlin. Uh, That's the reason I uh, decided not to go to Clemson and come here. I uh, had a great relationship with Coach Carlin. uh, And even after my playing days, it became even a better relationship. He literally became like a father figure to me. But I like Coach Carlin's straightforward approach. Uh, A lot of people were put off by that. Coach Carlin was very blunt. He could be abrasive. Uh, but he was straightforward in his approach, and he told you exactly how he felt. There was no gray area with Jim Carlin, but he was a good football coach. He was a great recruiter. He was a very loyal guy, and um, that's the reason I ended up here, and um, I um, thought the world of him, and like I said, our relationship, even after I played, and I went through some difficult times after my wrestling career was finished, and uh, Coach Carlin was right there. I mean, right beside me every step of the way. So. a good man, and the one that I'm very, very grateful that uh, was a part of my life.
3: That's awesome. Well, Dell, I don't want to get off the the 1980 season without without obviously asking you about George Rogers. You guys actually had a really good year that year as well. Went eight and four. I know, you know, really George was the the the, the main guy who shined. I mean, why not? I mean, had over 5,000 rushing yards in his career. Had his number retired. Won the Heisman Trophy. But as someone again that didn't get to watch George Rogers you know, week after week wasn't, you know, to be honest, wasn't wasn't around during that time. Just explain to people and explain to me even just what it was like being with George Rogers, playing for George Rogers, blocking for George Rogers, and what it was like to just see him run every single week.
4: Well, still to this day, the greatest football player I've ever been around. And, uh, you know, and that includes my whole time at Carolina. And I had the opportunity to be in a couple of NFL camps, but still the greatest football player I've ever been associated with. And It's funny, I was talking to somebody the other day that Gamecock fans now, they see George at the stadium, they see him before games, and they take pictures of that Heisman Trophy, and they see a guy that's 60 years old and he's a little heavier than he used to be. And a lot of them don't remember the football player because they were born after that. But they need to go back and go to YouTube and just check out George Rogers. He was a flat-out stud. Uh, The guy was an amazing football player. And he was more an amazing isn't as a, as a teammate. He was more amazing than he was as a football player. He was a guy that never ever uh, made it about him. He never wanted all that attention. He tried to shift the attention to his offensive line, his teammates. Uh, and um, guys like that make you want to play for them and make you want to go out and block for them. And, and you want to see them succeed because of that kind of an attitude, that kind of a teammate that he was. But, uh, just a stud as a running back. And uh, it was amazing to to come in my freshman year and be a part of that and just to watch him do the things that he was doing, have the success that he had. I still think to this day one of the biggest underrated teams in Gamecock football history is that 1980 team. Uh, one of the best offensive lines in Gamecock history is that 80 offensive line. Now, I think the 84 offensive line is the best ever. But that '80 team and that '84 offensive line, I think, uh, are just you know greatly, greatly underappreciated. We um, we went to Michigan and beat those guys on the road. We went to Southern Cal, had a heck of a game out there. I think played those guys within a touchdown. Uh, we had the big upset at Clemson where they beat the Britches. I mean, beat just beat the brakes off of us on a very bad day. And then we go to the Gator Bowl and we lose to the best college football team I've ever seen that '1980. Pittsburgh team as a matter of fact to sort of verify my opinion on that Pittsburgh team that year uh, as Bobby Bowden was approaching retirement and they were reflecting back on his career he said the best football team that he ever coached against was that 1980 Pitt team with all those guys I think three or four guys that are now in the NFL Hall of Fame off that team so we lost to some good teams that year um, and uh, I, I do really think an underrated team but it was it's a great way to start my college career to be a teammate with a Heisman Trophy winner.
3: Without a doubt. So I, I want to jump ahead a little bit, Dell, because the following season, 1981, South Carolina goes 6-6. Six and six. Um, Your career, though, took a little bit of a turn, um, which I don't want to skip over that 81 season without talking about that South Carolina uh, went on the road that year, beat number three-ranked North Carolina, which I think was the highest-ranked opponent win, especially I think it may still be the highest-ranked win on the road Um, Carolina won that one 31 to 13, but your career, obviously your personal career took a turn where you, uh, you know, Jim Carlin, um, I forget whether you can correct me if I'm wrong, whether he was let go or, uh, decided to leave, but Richard Bell hired his head coach the 1982 season, and you decide to quit football. You don't play the 1982 season. Um, talk about just, you know, what went in that, what went into that decision for you? Why'd you make the decision to quit football and sit out 1982?
4: Well, he, uh, Coach Coleman was let go, and it had nothing to do with performance on the field. Uh, he took a pretty young team in 1981 and went 6-6, six and six, and was coming off an eight 4 year where he had a Heisman Trophy winner. But there was just a, a a bitter relationship there with him and James Holderman, who was the president of the university at the time, and uh, Holderman made sure to fire him while he was out of town. It was just done in a cowardly way. And, and then had the gall, and this makes – this is – Obviously, it wasn't about what was going on with the football team. When you fire the head coach, but yet keep the entire staff intact and move his defensive coordinator up to the head coaching spot. And uh, it just did not sit well with me. It just was very disappointing. Like I said before, Jim Carlin was really the biggest reason I went to Carolina. And now he's been booted to the curb, but yet the entire staff stayed. And uh, I don't know. It just left a bitter taste in my mouth. I was very disappointed, very discouraged, very, I don't know, disillusioned. I just didn't want any part of that football team. So I did not play the 82 season. I, I went to several games and set up in the stands and watched, and it was a miserable season. Uh, they lost to Furman at homecoming that year. And um, I think a lot of Coach Bell, Richard Bell, Coach Bell was a guy that recruited me. And it was nothing personal against him, but uh, I just didn't want to be a part of that 82 team, and, and I wasn't.
3: What did you do during that 82 season? Was there any football training going on? Were you? I mean, did you kind of know what was next? I mean, or you were just kind of just kind of just waiting to see what happened?
4: I had no clue what was next. I got a full-time job and worked. And uh, my intentions were to try to save up enough money to get back into school. And uh, But I had no clue what the future held for me. I, I, I never, ever in my wildest dreams would have thought that I would have been back at the University of South Carolina playing football again. But when Coach Bell was let go, um, I got a call one day. Joe Morrison, is named the head coach. And just a few weeks after he got the job, Bruce, uh, Dr. John Moore, who was one of our associate athletic directors, uh, contacted me and said, look, man, said, "Uh, I know you've heard we've got a new coach in town and uh, he wants to talk with you and wants to meet with you to see if you'd be interested in coming back. And so I agreed to meet, to meet with coach uh, Morrison. So we set up a date and a place to meet and we did. And, um, it was a good meeting and he never one time asked me why I left. All he wanted to know was what I like to be a part of the team and to give him a chance as a head coach and to give his staff a chance. And I said, absolutely coach, I'd love to. And uh, that was all it took.
3: So yeah, I was gonna say obviously the thing that changed everything for you was Joe Morrison, the legendary Joe Morrison, being hired at South Carolina, um, and he took over obviously the 1983 season and beyond. But it sounds like obviously the first impressions were, you know, really good with him. I mean, what what else was it with Joe Morrison that I mean, you can you know, again for a Gamecock fan that wasn't fortunate enough to watch him you know lead the Gamecocks and coach South Carolina I mean what are some of the things what what were your impressions of Joe Morrison obviously not just getting you to um you know to I say come out of retirement but come back and to play football and also the success he led South Carolina to I mean I I guess to to you I, I guess it sounds like it came to no surprise that he led South Carolina to such great heights
4: no it didn't and I tell you that that very first meeting I had with him told me that he was a different kind of guy um Coach Carlin was a straight-laced, no-nonsense kind of guy, and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But my first meeting with Joe didn't start off very good, or at least I thought it wasn't going to start off very good. We were supposed to meet at 12 o'clock at a uh, little sandwich shop downtown near the campus, and um, 5 to 12, there's no Joe. 12 o'clock, there's no Joe. 5 after, there's no Joe, and this is way before cell phones, and it's getting close to 10 after. And, there's no Joe, and I'm thinking, wow, this guy really wants me back. He's has got a no-show me. Evidently, somebody's gotten in his ear and said, you don't want that Wilkes to get on the team. But eventually, he come walking in, and he apologized. He stuck his hand out, introduced himself, and he said, I'm sorry that I'm late. He said, but as you very well know, uh, I've just put together my coaching staff. We've not been on the job that long. And he said, all of the coaches are in town now, but we've yet to bring our families in town. He said, so all of the coaches got together last night. We played some poker. And he said, I'm going to be honest with you. He said, I had a little bit too much to drink, and I'm a little hungover. <laughs> but let's sit down and talk. And I just thought, wow, this is a different kind of guy. And uh, as a 18-year-old kid, 19-year-old kid, you know, that I don't know. It just, it, it just wasn't what I expected to hear from the head coach. But he was a player's coach. He was a guy that had gone straight from the NFL after he left the NFL in 1972. He was never an assistant coach for a single day. He became a head coach right out of the chute at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. And uh, he just related to players. It was um, Coach Morrison didn't have a lot of rules. The few that he had, you better follow them. But he was a players coach. He could just relate to players. He wasn't a screamer. He wasn't a yeller. He wasn't an in-your-face kind of guy. But yet he could motivate the snot out of you. Uh, Because you knew where he was coming from and the background that he had. I uh, I was a football fanatic as a kid, and I knew exactly who Joe Morrison was. I mean, I'd, I'd read about him, I'd heard about him. I knew he was a giant, great, and uh, so he just—I don't know—he was just the kind of guy you wanted to play for, and uh, and it just affected the whole team. And um, we knew right away that with that staff that he had, that we had a chance. If you know, if we could stay healthy, that we could eventually put something good together. And uh, we saw bits and pieces of it in 83, the potential that we could have. But as we all know, it really came together in 84.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, one thing I'm really curious about, because we already talked about the transition from high school football to college football. I mean, was there a transition for you once again when you, you know, going from taking a year off to getting back out there and strapping the pads on? Because I, I mean, I would just imagine you take, you know, Nowadays, you wouldn't even fathom, somebody wouldn't even fathom taking a year off and then jumping back in, but obviously you did that. I mean, was there any was there any transition or any tough phase going from, you know, sitting out to getting back on the practice field and back on the field in general?
4: Well, you know, the, the biggest thing for me, I think the biggest thing I had to overcome or the biggest issue that concerned me was the accept acceptance of my teammates back into the fold. Because, you know, once I had that meeting with Joe and he he said, look, we'll welcome you back, you know, your own scholarship. Just come back and be a part of this team. Then I had to come back and face those same guys that I had walked out on and and left. And I was concerned, you know, are they going to accept me back in? Am I going to get the cold shoulder treatment? What's going to happen here, you know? And uh, they just like I never left. And uh, teammates are that way, you know. Uh, guys, that you've played with, are that way. They just welcome you back, and if you can be a part of the team and help, they don't care why you left or how long you were gone for. But yeah, it was because it was tough physically getting back into the grind of it and getting back into football shape and weight room shape because I did nothing uh, from that standpoint. The year that I set out, I uh, I didn't train, I didn't lift, I partied a lot and uh, worked a lot. But uh, so yeah, it was uh, it was an adjustment physically. Uh, mentally uh, but the, the best thing for me was just my teammates welcoming welcoming me back with open arms and never questioning me about one thing
3: that's awesome so Dell, I want to switch gears just a little bit because I think it's interesting that you were at South Carolina during the time that one of the you know one of the most pre- prestigious traditions at South Carolina the 2001 a space odyssey entrance was kind of began um, you know obviously I think I read the story. It was Tommy Suggs that took the idea using the song to bring the team on the field. He brought it to Jim Carlin in 1981. And I think Carlin had the band play it. They did it for a couple of games during 1981 after Carlin, you know, was let go. The the AD, Bob Markham liked the idea and they introduced it. Um, I believe in 1983, they said they wanted to wait until uh, williams Bryce Williams-Brice stadium's new sound system was installed. So, rolled it out in 1983 for Joe Morrison's first year and it was played over the loudspeakers for the first home game and it's obviously been a South Carolina Gamecocks tradition you know ever since I mean I just again I think it's interesting that you were there at South Carolina during that time just kind of talk about the uh the rolling out of the 2001 entrance if you will and did you guys ever think it would turn into you know I guess what it is now today being you know truly a tradition and staple of Gamecock football
4: no i didn't i I was excited about it when we found out that that was going to be our entrance music i uh and I know Tommy got it from going to an Elvis Presley concert. i'm pretty sure that's where he heard it and uh I'm a huge Elvis Presley fan, so I was familiar with the song and know that Elvis used it and uh and incorporated it into his concert. so we were excited about it It's, it's mickey, if that can't pump you up, then you need to be embalmed uh and and waiting to run out on the field and you're hearing that song build up and you're getting to the, you know, the crescendo of that. And, and, and those fans are starting to get louder and louder. And you can literally just feel the earth shake as they're, you know, kicking their feet and, and, and clapping their hands and screaming and yelling. But now I'd had no clue. And I don't think any of us would have, that it would have lasted this long because obviously it's gone through several coaching changes and several different athletic directors and Several different philosophies, but that's been the one constant. And I think it gives us a uniqueness about our entrance, um, uh, you know, uh, prior to a football game. And it's something that Carolina fans have come to love and expect and cherish. And it does, it just, just talking about it just gives you chill bumps, man. It's a wonderful way to, to make an entrance on that field.
3: Without a doubt. So I, I want to move, obviously, into the 1984 season, Dell, the Black Magic season, if you will. I'll ask you first personally, because I'm going to get to the accolades in just a second. But, I mean, did you ever imagine that, especially in 1982, after you had you know quit football and you didn't know what your future held, I mean, did you ever expect that you would have the type of year, or one, that the team would have the type of year, and that two, you would have the type of year um, that led you guys to so much success for you personally and the team as well?
4: never would have never imagined it in my wildest dreams would have never expected it um like I said earlier we we had some glimpses of how good we could be during that 83 season uh we went down to Florida State and played those guys close and ended up losing and really the only big stinker I think we had was when Notre Dame came to town uh, in 83 and it was played in a rainstorm and they beat the brakes off of us but You know, we played Clemson pretty tough um, that year, and and you could see that we had a chance, and and I think everybody sensed it because the guys all stayed in town and went to summer school uh, the summer before the 84 season. Now, that wasn't a big deal for me. It wasn't a sacrifice for me. I lived in Columbia, but just about everybody stayed in town and went to summer school so we could be together so we could work out together, we could run together, we could train together. Uh, and, and it just, you could just see this thing starting to gel and come together. And then we get into spring ball, and the team's getting more, it's becoming a more cohesive unit. The offense is starting to gel because you got to think the, the offense, the defense, we had been through several, not only head coaches, but coordinators. We didn't, I mean, you couldn't get used to anything. It was going to be a coaching change, a philosophy change. But now we're getting ready to have our second year under the same group of coaches, and, and then we get into camp. And uh, there was just definitely an intensity in camp, uh, preseason camp that I'd never experienced there. And, again, you could just tell that guys felt like, man, if we, can, if we can stay healthy and if we can come together and if we can play like we feel we're capable of playing. Now, nobody imagined that we would have the kind of year that we had, but we certainly felt like we could have a very good year, but it turned into something beyond, I think, any of our wildest dreams.
3: For sure. So, Dell, again, switching uh, switching gears just a little bit. Obviously, a, a great offensive lineman that you were. I, I think it's funny today, you know, you hear – I mean, myself included, but you hear people talk football. You hear people try to analyze the game and break down football, more so in the media and things of that nature. And, you know, I feel like when they talk offensive line, it, it's it's a lot of guesswork, you know, like – I feel like offensive is a position. I know it was a little bit different back then because the offenses have changed so much and, you know, the schemes have changed so much. But I feel like offensive line is a position that, number one, we obviously know it doesn't get the credit that it deserves. But number two, it's a position that if you have not played it, you really don't understand all the ins and outs and nuances. And it's a much more complex thing and much more difficult thing to be, you know, when somebody's an exceptional offensive lineman, it's – it's, it should be much more recognized, I guess you could say, than it is currently. I mean, is there any merit to what I'm saying? Because it's funny. Again, I feel like people try to break down offensive line, but 99.9% of us have no clue what we're talking about.
4: No, I would agree 100% with you. I think it's a very good assessment. And an offensive line, is it, it, to have an ex- a successful offensive line, first of all, there's got to be chemistry there and, and cohesiveness. And that comes with experience. And that offensive line in 84 had played together in 83. So we had a year under our belt together for that 83 season. We had had spring ball prior to the 83 season, camp prior to the 83 season, the 83 season itself, our workouts in the off season, again, spring ball, again, camp prior to the 84 season. So we had developed a gel and a bond, and it was a very close group. I'll tell you, whether at high school, College and the two short camps I was in in the NFL, the offensive line is always the cr- closest group. I, that those five starters in '83 and '84, we were always together. I mean, always. And my room seemed to be the place where everybody would gather and would watch film and break down film and play cards and watch TV. And it was just we were always together doing something together. And I think that's important for an offensive line because I feel like more so than any other group on the field that kind of closeness and bond is more important with that group maybe than any other, because you do play in anonymity. Uh, there's really outside of your parents, there's nobody in that stadium watching you and keeping an eye on you. They're watching where the football goes and who has it in their hands and what they're doing with it. So we we lean on each other and we count on each other. And also too, with an offensive line, making calls prior to the snap as the defense shifts and moves and, in and out of gaps and things like that, it's so important that we're all on the same page and that we're we're getting these calls and making these calls. So all that together just brings a closeness to that group. And uh, we had a very, very close group that worked very hard. And uh, like I said, I I still – I know I'm biased, but I still think it's the greatest offensive line, that 84 group that's ever played. You look at the numbers that we had as an offense – and Mike and our quarterbacks, and Mitchell, they were great at throwing the ball. They were efficient. They did a good job of it. Uh, but most of that offense came from running the ball. And uh, we could just flat out move people off the football and create running lanes and create uh, uh, gaps for guys to run through and lanes for guys to run through. So, uh, you know, it was it was a special group.
3: No doubt. And, I, you, you know, <clears throat> you already mentioned the numbers, Dell, but I, I want to get back to it. 2,761 rushing yards is what South Carolina picked up in that 1984 season. I know I talked about the beginning of the show, but, I mean, again, you were part of an offensive line That in 84. South Carolina set school records for touchdowns with 49 points with 371 and total offense with 5,095 yards. Um, I'll ask you because you guys obviously start the season 9-0 and with some huge wins over – you guys went to Notre Dame and won, beat NC State, beat Florida State, beat Georgia early on in the year – When did it click for you? Was there a game? Was there a specific moment when you thought to yourself, this could be a really, really special season?
4: Absolutely, and I think everybody on that team would tell you, and I think most of them would tell you the same thing. I'm telling you that it was the Georgia game, uh, the third game of the season. Uh, The Georgia game, while I was there and and for a lot of years afterwards, has always been a very important game. Uh, and, and a game that would sort of set the tone for the season or just let you know where you were at as a team. We, um, and another thing about that offensive line, I'll, I'll say real quick and I'll get back to my other point, is they were all seniors. That was five seniors on that offensive line. But we didn't start off too good in the Citadel game. Uh, we struggled. Um, we barely won. We scored a touchdown late. And, and then they take the kickoff after we score to take the lead and run it and run the kickoff back about 80 yards. And it looked like we were going to lose the game, but we hung on to win. And then the next week we beat Duke 21 to nothing, but it was a defense. that really, really set the tone in that game. We still were somewhat struggling offensively, but that Georgia game, uh, we knew that was a good football team. Georgia's always got a good football team and uh, I'll never forget. It was just a unique atmosphere. It was a different atmosphere. That night in the locker room waiting to to go out on the field as we were getting dressed and getting taped and preparing for the game, it was just a a very quiet confidence in that locker room. And uh, beating them was a big deal for us. And I think it sort of set the tone for the season. But then the next one that really, really did a lot, too, to sort of catapult us on our way was going our first road game. I think we played our first five games at home. And our first road game was Notre Dame. And we went up there, and uh, we were down. And in the uh, fourth quarter, scored 26 points to beat those guys and came from behind to beat those guys. And uh, that was a big deal for us and a big win for us to take your first road game to you know, the hallowed grounds of Notre Dame and in that stadium. And right there at touchdown Jesus, we scored all those touchdowns in the fourth quarter and to, to be able to do that was really a confidence booster as well. A very, very important game for that season.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, Dell, it's just very interesting how we're talking back again about the 84 season and that South Carolina Georgia game. It's, I mean, it's still kind of the measuring stick game, especially when it's the second or third game of the season. I feel like both programs, especially for South Carolina, when the Gamecocks win that one, you sort of have a feeling it's going to be a really, really good year. And it's just interesting to hear that was the, you know, that was certainly the case in 1984 as well. I, I definitely wanted to touch on that. That's, uh, that Notre Dame game, obviously, you guys, again, like you said, scored 26 points in the second half, or I think you said the final quarter. But obviously, just going on the road and beating the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, again, you talked about such a historic venue, such a historic program with all the tradition and history they had. I mean, talk about that game. I know that's one that had to be really, really special, not just for South Carolina fans, but for the entire team, the program, the players, everyone involved.
4: It was. It was a huge, you know, a huge deal for us. And like I said earlier, they had come to Columbia the year before and just, I mean, just split our head wide open, and it wasn't even a close game. I think it was 30-6, to and it was raining. It was a miserable, long night, and they just completely dominated us. But for being the first road game in that atmosphere against that opponent, and I'll tell you something else that happened that game that will always, as long as I have a memory, will be etched in that memory this second half, especially that fourth quarter up there in South Bend, was back and forth. It was crazy. We Listen, we turned the ball over several times and uh, could have scored much more than we did, but we turned the ball over several times. But anyway, it's just a back and forth game. It's a nail biter, a gut wrencher, whatever phrase you want to use to describe it. But I'll never forget during the timeout, the offense is out on the field and Jerry Faust was the head coach at Notre Dame. This was a guy that had come from Moeller High School, uh, one of the great high school programs in the country at that time, and got the Notre Dame job. And I looked over, and, and this guy's just pacing up and down the sidelines, and he's got a sweatshirt on, and he's got the sleeves pulled over his, his hands. You he can't see his hand because the sleeves so far over his hand, and he's just chewing on his sweatshirt like he was chewing on his nails but he's just literally biting on that sweatshirt and gnawing on it and just pacing back and forth. And I looked over at my sideline and there stood Joe, just like a statue, he had a Marlboro in his hand. He had that black Carolina cap on and those black fighter pilot shades. And I thought, wow, I'm glad this guy over here is my head coach because this cat over here is about to fall apart. This game's getting to him. But I look over and I see my coach and he's as solid as a rock. And uh, it was just an image that meant a lot to me and one that has always stuck with me.
3: My, how times have changed, Dell. With, uh, and it's funny because you hear the stories of Joe Morrison, but to hear it directly from you, like just coaches back in the day of chewing red man or smoking tobacco on the sidelines, it's, uh, it times have certainly changed since those days. I bet you would agree.
4: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you, uh, a coach wouldn't last one game now if he got caught with a burner on the sidelines, He'd be gone. <laughs> but, uh, But Joe went through quite a few of them on the
3: sidelines. No doubt. So, another game I want to touch on, Dell, obviously before uh, we get into the rest of the season is the Florida State game. Number 11, Florida State comes to town. It's a packed house. You guys are ranked fifth in the country, and you beat those guys 38-26. Just just talk about that game. Again, it's kind of a similar situation, but at home, another really historic program in Florida State. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe Bobby Bowden was already there um just it was, talk about, it was yeah yeah just talk about that game beating Florida State and again you guys get to 9-0 and after the victory um I know it had to be a pretty special day at Williams Bryce
4: it was and, and you know this was back when um there weren't college games on every station there weren't you know 50 games on on the Saturday uh we were on ABC uh I think kickoff was at three thirty or 4 it was late in the afternoon it was the game of the week and uh so we knew that the whole nation was going to be watching, or at least the part of the nation that watches college football would be watching this game. And, again, this was a team that the year before we'd gone to Tallahassee, and we played them pretty tough, but they pulled away in the end and I think beat us by 14 or 15 points. And, uh, again, we're, we're we're facing a traditional I mean, a team that's got tradition about them. Coach Bowden had already done some good things there. And uh, this was another big stepping stone for us. And we got out to a huge lead. I mean, a, a big lead. And we turned the ball over several times and, and allowed them to get back in the game. But it really wasn't as close as the score indicated. I think you said thirty-eight to twenty-six, but it really wasn't even that close. We just did some stupid things late in the ball game that allowed them to get in. Uh, one of our defensive backs, Blank Gilliard, had four interceptions. Had a great game. Um, but it was it was a huge, huge game for us. And uh, not only for you know Gamecock Nation, but from a from a national standpoint, that the nation got to see us play that afternoon and got to see a pretty pretty good football team uh, beat another very good football team and beat them pretty handily too.
3: No doubt. So Dell, simply put, you guys you know beat Florida State. You're number two in the country. A game that is still talked about to this day. South Carolina travels up to Annapolis, Maryland, to take on Navy, and you guys lose thirty eight to twenty one to Navy, just can you explain what happened that day?
4: You know, I wish I could. Um, I felt like we had a good week of practice. Uh, You know, we were coming off the Florida State game and that big emotional win, and then right after Navy, we've got Clemson. So maybe just of them being in between those two big games. But I don't think it was a lack of preparation or a lack of, you know, uh, not being into the game, we had opportunities very early in that game uh, to take a lead on them. Uh, I think the first three or four times we had the football, we had put ourselves in position to score. Uh, I think we may have missed a field goal, uh, turned the ball over, but we just didn't take advantage of those opportunities. I'll never forget. It was just a cold day up there. It was a, you know, beautiful. The sunshine was. It was. It was sunshiny. It was bright. Not a cloud in the sky. But it was brutally cold. And uh, we just kept making some mistakes early in the game. And it allowed those guys to hang around. And you know that the military schools, if anything, are disciplined. They're tough. They're not going to give up. They're going to fight. And they did. And they continued to. And the next thing you know, it's 31-7 to 7 or 38-7. to 7, And they've got a huge lead on us. And I always thought that we could make a comeback. I, I, we've come back so many times in that year and won and uh but we just weren't able to overcome that huge leap that day and it was man it was like just getting punched in your mouth and your gut it um, we knew what it had cost us we knew we knew what we had done and I think still to this day probably the biggest loss we've ever had in football as far as what it potentially could have allowed us to do which was be the number one team in the nation and possibly play for a national championship. And I'll never forget what really drove it home. What we have lost is the next day, every Sunday afternoon, the team would get together and, um, there's a, a big theater like building or, um, up under the stadium. And the team would meet in the, we call it the theater room or the amphitheater room. And the whole team would meet there every Sunday. And, um, Coach Morrison would come in and talk for a few minutes about the good things we did in the game, talk about some of the things we needed to correct, and he would just give us his recap of the game and how he felt and what to expect in practice this upcoming week, and then we would break up and go into our individual uh, meeting rooms with our uh, position coaches. And for nine Sundays, boy, that room was loud. It was joyous. It was raucous when Coach Morrison would come in, and he'd literally have to just Hey, hey, quieting down, you know, okay, let's settle down, let's talk. But for nine Sundays, it was that kind of atmosphere. But that Sunday, nobody said a word, man. It was deathly quiet in that room. And he came in, and he there's a big chalkboard behind him, and he wrote down the numbers, one, two, three, four. And beside one, he wrote number one in the country. Beside two, he wrote Orange Bowl. Beside three, he wrote what the Orange Bowl payout was at that time. And then on number four, he wrote National Champs. And he turned around and looked at us, and he said, that's what you guys just lost yesterday. He said, that's what you've cost yourself. He said, now let's see how you can respond from that. And if you can pick yourself up, we've got a big game ahead of us, but I want you to look at that. And don't ever forget, that's what you cost yourself right there. Man, I'm telling you, it was just like, wow got to be kidding me, dudes. I mean, that's strong. But it was. That was what we had cost ourselves. And we didn't get over that. We had a horrible week of practice. It was a group that was really discouraged and uh, down on themselves. And it was evident by the way we played the first half at Clemson. But there was something that happened at halftime at Clemson or right before halftime that we started playing better. We got a late touchdown before the half. And, Of course, that second half was a much different game at Clemson. But, yeah, what an expensive loss.
3: Without a doubt. Joe Morrison definitely, uh, you know, hammered it home, no doubt. But, uh, you know, like you mentioned, to see you guys bounce back again, you do go to Clemson again, a second-half comeback. You guys get the win, 22-21 um obviously again not not again finishing where you want to being where you want to but you're able to beat Clemson which in South Carolina fans minds is a really big deal as you obviously know I haven't asked you about it to this point but I want to get your take Dell, on just you know you were a guy again that at one point was committed to Clemson came to South Carolina and I believe 84 was probably the first time in your career that you had been able to beat those guys and especially in their house everybody knows the 84 game is the to hold that tiger game with William refrigerator, Perry, a guy that you lined up across from just, just talk about number one, your experiences of the South Carolina Clemson rivalry and that 84 game in particular, just how special that was to, you know, kind of avenge the loss the 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 previous week and get a win over your arch rival.
4: Well, it was huge. And, 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 um, like I said earlier in this conversation, I grew up a Gamecock fan and, uh, as a, you know, my grandfather, my dad's dad, and my dad's brothers, they all went to South Carolina and they had a great, great, uh, they educated me on the history of Gamecock football. I learned it at their feet, man, just everything about Gamecock football teams, players. Uh, and of course, I knew the importance of Carolina Clemson. And, and the first game I started uh, in that Carolina Clemson rivalry was in 81. And literally the night before the game, I could not sleep. I was so – it wasn't nervousness. It was just – there was an anxiety about me. I'm getting ready to start in a Carolina-Clemson game, a rivalry I grew up with. I'm very familiar with it. I know about it. I know about the history of it. And I'm going to be starting in the same man. And I could not sleep that night. I, I mean, I paced the floor there in my hotel room, just in anticipation of getting out there and playing. And so now we're able to put the, the Navy loss behind us and go up there and win. And I can assure you at the end of that game in 84 in Clemson, nobody was worried about what had happened at Navy the week before. We were elated because it was the first time that I had beat them. It was the first time any of the guys on that team had beat Clemson, and we beat them there. I would have rather beat them there than beat them in William Bright Stadium. And it was the first time they had ever lost in the all-orange uniforms. Uh, If you know the history of that, the first time they ever broke out those all-orange uniforms was the 1980 Carolina-Clemson game. And um, the Willie Underwood two interceptions and where they beat us and it was an upset, we we should have beat them. And they had not lost in those all-orange outfits until that day. So to go up there and beat them, after being down 21-3 to three and beating them, after all the taunting we took and all the times we heard anchors away played because of the Navy beatdown we suffered, man, it was, it was just great to be able to do it there, do it on their field, do it in front of their fans, do it in the all-orange uniforms, and for all of us, the first time we'd ever done it. So uh, it was just sweet, man. It was a wonderful day.
3: I'm sure you've got to get a huge smile on your face every time you see the, uh, the Mike hold, hold that tiger picture. Cause it's obviously still one that is very, very popular amongst Gamecock fans.
4: Oh, it is. And I, I was proud of Mike. And I, and you know, that's another thing I'd played against William. He played at Aiken high school. I played at Irmo back then. We were in the same region. So we played each other every year. So I'd been playing against William since high school. And, and of course all these years at Carolina and him at Clemson and, um, you know, when you're in a game and, and the quarterback's going to take a knee, you let the defensive lineman know, hey, guys, he's just going to take a knee. This thing's over. We're in victory formation. You know, I'm not coming off the football. And uh, you, know, you just let them know that. And, of course, he'd come blowing through there anyway, all 350 pounds of him. And Mike just stuck that football out in his face and just dropped it at his feet. And you're right. It's one of the most iconic Gamecock photos ever and will always be that way.
3: No doubt. So, personally for you, again, 1984, again, you guys go, uh, excuse me, you guys go to the Gator Bowl, lose to Oklahoma State, but finish, you know, again, before the Spur- Steve Spurrier era, you guys would finish 10-2 and overall. It was the most successful Gamecocks football season of all time, and I'm sure you would probably argue, and I don't think it'd be a bad argument to say, it could be arguably the greatest South Carolina Gamecocks football team of all time, if if not for one maybe call it fluky upset. But for you personally, Dell, like I mentioned, you're one of only four consensus All-American football players. Um, After that 1984 season, you were selected All-American starter by American Football Coaches Association, AP, Walter Camp Football Foundation. Just talk about what clicked for you specifically. I know you talked about you were surrounded by four other seniors, which I know that made a huge deal for you. But for you personally, I know you were a guy, I don't want to also miss out on this. You added 50 pounds of muscle. Uh, I know, I'm know i sure that helped, but what all clicked for you for that 1984 season for you to be one of only four consensus All American football players at the University of South Carolina?
4: Well, I think when something like that happens, a lot of things have to come together. Number one, I worked my tail off, as did all those other guys, but I worked my backside off getting ready for that season during the off season, building up to the season. I mean, I, I just lived in that weight room. I, I, I lived on those stadium steps, running running those steps and running and just getting into shape and trying to get bigger and stronger. Um, I mean, devour film, everything that you need to do to make yourself, make yourself a better player, I did, and I did it abundantly. And um, I was obsessed with it. I knew it was my last year, and I wanted to go out. Uh, you know, leaving my mark, not only me, but this team, but I was surrounded by four other guys on that offensive line that were special players. As a matter of fact, going into that season, the other guard, Jim Walsh, was the one that the Sports Information Department was really pushing for probably potentially some All American consideration. Jim was that good of a football player and uh, a great offensive lineman. Uh, but I had a lot of good things happen to me as the team did. Had we been five and six? I don't know that I would have gotten the attention that I got. I think being a part of a probably the team that sort of captivated college football for most of that year was a big deal. We got a lot of attention. Um, you know, had several games on TV. I had some of my better games against some of the bigger programs in the country. Uh, I mean, I played lights out against Georgia, the greatest football game I've ever played. I got a lot of high praise from Vince Dooley after that game. Uh, I did the same thing at Notre Dame, the same thing with Florida State, the same thing with Clemson. So some of my better games were against the more bigger opponents and bigger-name teams. So I think all that came together um, to allow me to experience the things that I was able to experience with being a a first-team All-American, but not only a first-team All-American, but a consensus All-American. And the first South Carolina native to ever achieve that, of course, Clowney's done it since then, But um, that was was just so much that came together that allowed that to happen.
3: Uh, How, you know, I'm sure it meant, and I know you just touched on it, but Dell, I'm sure it it meant something, you know, it obviously meant a lot to you when it happened. But, I mean, we sit here in 2019 now when you look back and say, you know, you're one of only just four. I I mean – where does that has to be a really really special thing because again that's not just I mean this is something that not everybody has done only four guys in the history of the South Carolina football program when you sit here current day I mean and I'm sure that's something when people see you out or talk to you if you ever go to any South Carolina game I'm sure you probably still do you're reminded of and people talk about those days and you being a consensus all American where does that sit for you amongst all of your accomplishments because I have to imagine that's something really 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 special
4: it is. And to be in the company that I'm in, when you look at the, the other three, George Rogers, uh, Jadavion Clowney, and Melvin, Melvin Ingram, uh, to be in the same group with those guys, it's just amazing. It really is. And, uh, and I'm not belittling that, but I'll tell you, the most important thing to me, and the thing that I am most proud of uh, from an individual standpoint for that season, and being one of only four consensus All-Americans is a big deal, and I'm very proud of that, but the thing that makes me the proudest is that on that team that was that good, that successful, came that close to playing for a national championship, that my teammates voted me their offensive captain, and our coaches voted me the offensive most valuable player. On an offense that produced over 5,000 yards, and that coaching staff said, hey, we think number sixty three was the most valuable player on that offense, and my teammates, felt the same way about me being their captain. That's more important to me than any other award that I won or could have won, that the guys and the coaches that saw me every day in the weight room, in the film room, on the practice field, uh, you know, watching film late night in my room, that those people thought enough of me to give me those honors. That that ranks above even being a consensus All-American.
3: That's awesome. So, Adele, uh, let's move into after your career at South Carolina. I know you tried a career in the NFL with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Atlanta Falcons. Um, I guess before we get into your pro wrestling career, just talk about really briefly your stint in the NFL, just kind of what you learned. And, um, you know, what was that experience like going from college to the NFL ranks?
4: Well, it was an interesting experience. It was a short experience, it didn't last very long. But you you realize that uh, they're just only a handful of jobs that are available at that level. And, um, you know, sometimes you can be a very good football player. You can be a consensus All-American and not get one of those jobs. And uh, But I was honored that I had the, the chance to do so. Um, and, uh, you know, like I, we, we mentioned earlier, the biggest jump is from college or high school to college. You know, you get to the NFL and, and you know, there wasn't anybody that was in, faster or stronger or, you know, any more physically impressive. I mean, I, I know when I was with the Falcons, um, I had some of the – I think some of the top lifts going into the season. We had to max out on certain uh, things in the weight room, and, and I was at the top of the list on those things. But when you're only going to keep eight offensive linemen and you've got several guys that are playing at a Pro Bowl caliber, caliber you realize, man, I you know, there's only a few spots here that are open and it just didn't work out. And uh, but I'm glad that I had the opportunity.
3: For sure. So I'm very curious now, Dell. I'm extremely excited to get into this portion of the interview because I, I can, it's kind of funny, Dell. you're the first offensive lineman that I've had on the show, which is obviously a big deal, but you're also the first. And I would certainly think probably the only wrestler I will ever have on this podcast. So I, I'm very, very excited about it. And I've some, I'm someone that, you know I'm obviously from South Carolina grew up, everybody and you know people in the South like wrestling it's it's something that's like really watched and um I'm excited to get to this so I'll, I'll just ask you simply put you started your wrestling career in 1988 what got you into it I mean was it ever something you had thought about before was it something that just got kind of came up out of nowhere I mean what made you think you know you, you're going to jump into
4: wrestling well number one I'd always been a huge wrestling fan um I mean, I love pro wrestling as far back as I can remember. I, on Saturdays, uh, I would watch pro wrestling, and Saturday nights, I would watch pro wrestling. Um, we only got it in bits and pieces. I think we had it for an hour on Saturday mornings, and then on Saturday nights, you could get 30 minutes of, of Florida championship wrestling. But uh, I would miss it, and I was just obsessed with it. I loved it. I, I can vividly remember when my mom would go to the grocery store on Saturdays to get groceries. I would always sit, sit down right there at the magazine rack and look through those wrestling magazines, and I would look through and see guys like Jack Briscoe and Wahoo McDaniel and and uh, Ric Flair, and just I was just mesmerized by it. And um, I went to my first live event at the township auditorium in 1971, and um, a good friend of the family. Uh, took me, bought a ticket, and knew how much I loved it. I was 10 years old. And uh, I can't remember anything about the card that night except who wrestled the main event. And it was the Briscoe brothers, Jack and Jerry Briscoe against uh, Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson. And we're literally at ringside, and I'm looking at these four guys in the ring. And, I mean, this is this is Elvis to me. I mean, they're just – they were bigger to me. I was more impressed with these guys than if I'd have been there watching Roman Gabriel, or any other player that, you know, at that time that was a big deal in the NFL. I'm watching these guys that I've seen on TV every Saturday, and I'm up close and personal with them. And uh, I left there that night, the ripe old age of 10, and I told the guy that took me, I said, I'm going to do that one day. So I'd always had that in me that I wanted to do it at some point in time when football was over. And um, after the Falcons released me prior to the start of the 86 season, I came back to Columbia. I got a job, and I actually broke into the business in 87. That's when I started training at the fabulous Moolah School, Lillian Ellison. Um, is probably still to this day one of the most iconic lady wrestlers ever. And um, she was born and raised in Columbia, and uh, she had a wrestling school there on her property. And it was really geared more toward girls. She had trained a lot of women that had gone on to have very successful careers and become big stars in pro wrestling. And I was one of the few guys that went through there. But that's all where it started. And uh, and I was nervous that day I went to meet Moolah uh, because, again, I knew who she was. I'd seen Mula on TV. I'd seen Mula in those magazines sitting at those magazine racks when I was a kid looking through that. And man, I was meeting people that were heroes to me. And But that's where the love of it started and the desire to want to pursue a career in that business.
3: No doubt. So your career ran from 1988 to 2000, Dell, I want to go through really quickly some of the different, uh, you know, associations, federations, if you will. You wrestled on the American Wrestling Association, Global Wrestling Federation, World Wrestling Federation, or the WWF, All Japan Pro Wrestling, World Championship Wrestling, um, and then the World Wrestling Federation, again, WWF. I I want to go back to, though, the one thing I noticed about you, because I know with wrestling, you obviously have to have, You have to have a certain persona. You have to be like a character, if you will. I mean, if you look at wrestling, now you mentioned Ric Flair. You know, the first wrestler I think of is like Hulk Hogan. I mean, you, you have a certain persona, a certain character. I think it's funny. You always seem to have a flair for the dramatics or a character. Your first ever character, for those that don't know, you were the trooper. And I thought what was so funny is that you played into that by you wrote your opponent's tickets after you beat them as part of your police gimmick, and you would hand out plastic police badges to fans as they came to the ring. Talk about where did that idea come from? Because, honestly, reading that makes me laugh hysterically inside, and I just think that's absolutely awesome.
4: Well, I um, I had, um, in, in in working for Mula and going through her, her school and training, she would also run shows around the Midlands of South Carolina to give us guys and girls a chance to get into a ring in front of a crowd and work, and perform, and and sort of, you know, hone our skills, and obviously she made money too, so it just wasn't for the benefit of us, but that's what it allowed us to do. Well, on one of those shows that she ran here in Columbia, she brought in the guy named Wahoo McDaniel. Wahoo was living, he had a permanent home in Charlotte, but he was working for the AWA uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The AWA was owned and operated by another iconic guy in the business, Vern Gagne. And uh, Wahoo came down and worked that show for Moolin. I was on the show and um, we just hit it off. And uh, he said, look, man, he said, I think you got an opportunity in this business to, to make a career out of it, make a lot of money, do very well. He said, I'll be back up in Minneapolis next week. He said, I'm going to talk to Vern about you and Vern's son, Greg. They were running the AWA. And um, so I got a call. I got a call from Vern Ganya, And man, I was blown away. I'm thinking. Dude, I'm talking to Vern Gagne on the phone, and he wants me to come work for him. And um, so when I got up there, uh, I was just working as Dell Wilkes. Now, I'll try to make a long story short, but one of the guys that helped train me at Moolah's and would work those little shows that she would have around the Midlands was in real life a deputy sheriff in Orangeburg County. So it was natural on the weekends when he would work those shows that he would just be an extension of what he did in everyday life. And he worked, I think, as a super enforcer. But he went to the ring with his highway, I mean, his uh, deputy sheriff outfit on. And he called me when I first got up to the AWA and said, look, man, I'm going to send you some of my highlight tapes. Will you pass it on to Vern and Wahoo to see if they'd be interested in me? I said, sure. So he mailed it to me. And I gave it to Vern. And about a week later, he called me. He said, I need you to come by the office. I want to talk to you. So when I get in, he says, you know, the tape you gave me of that guy in Orange, I mean, in South Carolina that works as the deputy sheriff. I said, yeah. He said, we have no interest in him. But man, do we like that idea for a character. And here's what I'm thinking. We're going to put a belt on you and, you know, you're going to have the handcuffs and the flashlight. And we're going to call you the trooper. He said, you just got to look like a, you know, a square jawed highway patrolman in the south with that southern accent you got. And he said, you're going to write tickets uh, to your opponent after you beat them. You're going to have a submission hold, and um, you're going to hand out plastic badges. And I thought, man, that's wonderful. I love it. I'm all in. Let's do it. And uh, it turned out to be a big deal for me because the AWA, while they were a struggling company at that time and one that would eventually go out of business, they were on ESPN five days a week, Monday through Friday. So I had a chance to be on nationwide TV five days a week. And it opened, eventually would open up a lot of other doors for me. So that character was a big deal for me because it really got my foot in the door and helped open a lot of other doors for me, even though that company would eventually go out of business and I would eventually do another character. But that was a very important time for my career.
3: No doubts. I I want to move ahead again, Dell. Obviously, later in your career, you switched up from the Trooper to the Patriot. And it's funny, I actually... Uh, I'll be honest, did a YouTube search of you of the Patriot before we came on this interview and was able to see kind of your entrance, obviously coming out with the mask and the American flag. And I know that's really the one that stuck, you know, you're better known as the Patriot. But uh, I, I want to talk about specifically your entrance, I guess, because you you know, it's funny, I think we talked about earlier, you talked about when you run out for the 2001 entrance, and I guess the type of zone you're in and the the adrenaline rush you're feeling. I mean, talk about You know, again, because just the YouTube videos I've seen, you look locked in, laser-focused, and, you know, you're really playing the part well. But talk about um, when they call Del Wilkes the Patriot up there and you walk out and you've got the American flag and your mask on. I mean, just talk about those days, I guess. What is that feeling like for those of us that will never know?
4: Oh, it's amazing. Um, I don't care how tired you are if you've been on the road a month, and in that month you've worked 28 days, which that's happened a lot. But, the, night, but the, the, the moment you walk through that curtain and you walk down that aisle and you're waving that flag, and all the attention is on you. The house lights are down and that spotlight's on you, and those people are you know stomping their feet and they're clapping their hands and they're chanting USA, USA, or Patriot, Patriot. Oh, man, it's, it's just it's indescribable. If you've never felt it, I don't know that I can do it justice in trying to describe it. It's just an unbelievable feeling. And you had mentioned earlier about, you know, doing characters and, and characters it's something that you're comfortable with. And I think one of the reasons that character took off the way it did and gained the popularity that it did was that was that fit me. That's me. Um I'm a guy that's deeply in love with his country and extremely proud of his country in spite of whatever issues we may have. So I wasn't having to act. I wasn't having, this wasn't a stretch for me. This just fit me. It's who I am. It's how I feel. I love waving that flag and everything it represents. So it was an easy thing for me to do and to portray that character. And uh, it was just a natural fit for me. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons we were able to have the success we had with it. Listen, I know Steve Austin. I know Steve very well. And Steve Austin, the individual, has got a lot of stone cold in him. That's part of who he is, and I know Ric Flair, and and Ric Flair away from the ring is the Ric Flair you see. He's that loud guy. He's that party guy Let's have fun. He's that guy that can run his mouth and talk. So I think all these guys that are successful, they do a character that in a lot of ways is just an extension of them, and that was the case with me and the Patriots.
3: How cool is it that Ric Flair is also a Gamecock fan? I feel like that's got to be a very cool connection. <laughs>
4: have. Yeah, it is. Certainly is.
3: I'll ask you, you know, Dell. we're going to wrap up here in just a second, but uh, I'm very curious to know your, what was your go-to move? I feel like every wrestler has like a go-to move, if you will. What What was yours?
4: Well, um, for a number of years, uh, as the Patriot, it was a Patriot missile, which was a, a flying shoulder off the top turnbuckle. Uh, but after doing that for a number of years and and literally blowing both of my triceps out and blowing both of my elbows out and having surgery after surgery on my elbows, I needed to come up with something that would keep me grounded and not have to leave my feet. So then we came up with the Uncle Slam. It's just a full melts and hold that, that literally turns into where you you got your opponent in a full melt and then you just pick him up and slam him on his back on the way back down to the mat. So um, it was a little easier on my body it didn't uh, get me hurt quite as much. So started off with the patriot missile but ended up with the uncle slam.
3: That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. So I, I know you retired in 2000 obviously had some injuries and uh, I I guess I'll ask you simply when you look back on your wrestling career I mean what what was when you look back on it, I guess, what is it like to reflect? Is it similar as your football career? I, mean, I know you had a lot of good memories, and you're obviously really successful, someone very well-known. And I have to imagine you have a lot of good memories from it.
4: Oh, I do. It's, um, you know, what, what was so cool about it is that kid that night that went to the township auditorium at 10 years old, and he saw the Briscoe Brothers in the ring, and he saw Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen, and he had looked at magazines with Dory Funk and Wahoo, and flair in it. That kid got to work with those guys, and he got to become friends with them, and got to be co-workers with them, and travel the roads with them, and and uh, travel the world with them. And that was was a dream come true. I uh, it was something i would always wanted to do as a kid. Something just fascinated me, and uh, it just got my attention. But that kid that night, it was ten years old. Later down the road, became friends with all those guys, and worked with them, and worked against them, and beat him and got his hands raised against him and just had a wonderful career and um, great memories. Great, 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 great memories. It's taken a toll on my body. I've had 16 surgeries as a result of that career. Sometimes I don't walk too good because of that. But those memories, they always put a smile on my face. To be able to accomplish that and to be able to enjoy that career and make the friends and the relationships that I have. And, you know, I still get to do it. I don't get in the ring. I haven't been in the ring. I think the last time I got in the ring and worked a match was in 2005. Um, but I still do personal appearances and go to these fan fest events where you get to see your buddies again, the guys that you traveled the world with, and you get to hang out with them and you get to mingle with the fans and find autographs and take pictures. So even though I don't get in the ring and do those things, I'm still a part of that business and still enjoy being able to be around the guys and to be around the wrestling fan who I find to be some of the greatest fans on the face of the earth. It's amazing. These fans can tell you things and remember things about your career that I don't remember. Certain matches and certain feuds and certain situations. or what I tell you, it's a great thing, to. and I hear it all the time. Uh, when I started doing the Patriot character and I was working for the Global Wrestling Federation, and we ended up on ESPN Monday through Friday from 4 to 5 o'clock. And I can't tell you the thousands upon thousands of times that I've heard and still hear, hey man, when I was a kid, I got home from school and as long as I got my homework done, my mom and dad let me watch the Global Wrestling Federation and I watched the Patriot. Man, you are my favorite wrestler. As a kid, every day when I got home from school, man, I couldn't wait for the Global Wrestling Federation to come on ESPN where I could watch the Patriot. I've heard that countless times. And it's a great thing to know that you were able to be a part of their life and, and to do that, and and to have some sort of hopefully positive influence on them. So it, it, it is; it's really, really special memories.
3: That's so awesome, man. Honestly, that, that's crazy. Well, Dill, I'm going to get you out of here. Last question I have have for you, though. Obviously, it's a Gamecocks podcast. I'm curious. Obviously, we've heard your your greatest single individual achievement at South Carolina, but I'm curious: what is your when you look back? You had to pick one. Your favorite memory as a Gamecock.
4: My overall favorite memory as a Gamecock would be going the '84 Clemson game, um, and for all the reasons that we talked about a while ago, uh, you got a group of guys that had never beat them, never, and uh, we, you know, we never could wear that medal. We never could brag about it. We'd never beat Clemson, but when you take the circumstances that surrounded it—a game that cost us literally a chance to play for a national championship. And to overcome that and to go up there and be down 21-3 to three and all those other things we talked about, those orange outfits and they would never done this and never lost that, and to be able to do it there, that is without a doubt probably the highlight of my four years there. Um, and you did it as a team, and you look around that locker room after the game, and, boy, you see the smiles on the faces and the coaches congratulating each other and hugging each other and all those bad memories of losing the Navy are gone. They're flushed down the toilet. Now you're celebrating a win over your in-state rivals at their place. So I'd have to say that would be the highlight of it for me.
3: Well, Dell, I just want to say I really, really do appreciate you taking the time. Obviously, kept, a little, kept you a little long, but just awesome stuff. I mean, a lot of great memories. And I feel like we could go another hour or two about the, the, your entire wrestling career more in depth. Might have to get you back on for that. But Dell, really do appreciate you taking the time. And uh, let's do it again sometime soon, for sure.
4: I would love to, and I I thank you for giving me the opportunity, I've enjoyed it.